Okay, good morning. My name is Nicolas Veron. Uh, on behalf of Bruegel, uh, I, it's my pleasure to host this session on uh, the realignment or lack thereof in European politics. We thought that uh, it would be an interesting topic to discuss within a month of the European Parliament election results, so we're still within a month. Uh, and uh, uh, I, can, I have zero claim to professional expertise on this. My work at Bruegel, as some of you know, is on banking and finance, so that's very far away from politics, of course. Uh, and, uh, but I'm delighted to have as a panelist this morning um, three uh, people who have more of a claim uh, to uh, political expertise. Uh, David Damiel will speak first. He's been for many years advisor to uh, now French President Macron, and he's co-authored a book with another advisor, Ismaël Emilien, on uh, the uh, strategy and doctrine of Macronism, I guess. Uh, so we'll hear about that. Uh, and uh, then Silke Vetach uh, is a long-standing uh, uh, correspondent uh, here for, uh, in Brussels for um, uh, German uh, uh, economic uh, handelsblatt. Um, and, um, uh, so, sorry, Wirtschaftswoche. Uh, I, I need more coffee. Uh, and uh, Otilia Dand uh, is uh, working with Teneo's uh, uh, consultancy uh, on uh, particularly Central and Eastern Europe, but uh, political analysis in Brussels uh, more generally. Uh, so uh, let's start with uh, David, uh, and uh, I'll ask uh, uh, our speakers to uh, be vigilant with time discipline because we want to have very much of a conversation on our questions. The question is about the political realignment in Europe and the relevance of the left-right divide. Obviously, if you compare the discussion about the appointment of the uh, next commission president, which I assume our panel will not completely uh, decide, uh, but it's a different conversation from the one five years ago, so that's uh, a good uh, starting point. David. Well, thank you very much, uh, Nicolas, for the, for the invitation and for the presentation. I'm not that much of an expert myself, I'm more of an actor, so with all the small actor of the, of the political scene we, are, we will be discussing, so I'm probably full of biases, and I assume that my, my panelists will be also vigilant on that. Uh, so the, the topic was, uh, has the left-right divide become obsolete in um, EU politics? That was the question you asked us. I believe that the situation is now quite different than uh, the one we, we knew uh, a, few, a few years, uh, a few years or a few months uh, from from now. A couple of months or a couple of years ago, there was already major political uh, upheavals. I mean, when you look at uh, Donald Trump's election in the U.S., when you look at the strange election in Italy resulting in the coalition of the Lega and of the Cinque Stelle movement, when you look at Brexit, when you look at the uh, election in France, everybody had the feeling that the political scene in uh, the Western world was upside down without knowing whether it was due to particular circumstances of the different countries or to a structural trend. I believe that first the addition of uh, these results, and second, the confirmation through the European election in major countries such as Britain, uh, such as France, such as Germany, such as Italy, confirm that uh, this uh, trend is uh, structural and something is going on that uh, 
in a way will change the political scene as we know it. I think it's important to put in light what's happening to a decades-old collapse of traditional right and left parties. And actually, even before the crisis, if you look at what's happened to the most important uh, political parties of the 1960s, of the 1970s, mainly uh, social democracy on the one hand and the conservative, the right, as you call it in different uh, countries, you can see a steady decline in their uh, electoral turnouts even before the less spectacular results and even before the 2000 uh, crisis. So I've got some uh, numbers here. When you look, for instance, at uh, Germany, you can see that uh, basically the, the right, the conservative parties lost uh, 10 points when, compared from the, when you compare the 60s to the 2000s. Uh, when you look at the different countries, as you can see it, it's basically the same trend. Uh, the average result of the conservative parties in the countries where they were uh, dominant uh, is uh, minus 10 points between the 60s and the 2000s. When you look at the left, you can see exactly the same thing. So when you look at Germany, for instance, the Social Democrats lost on average eight points between the 60s and the 70s. And when you look at the average, it's also almost, uh, it's a little bit above 10 points losses. So what's, what's happening? Uh, I think that a structural change as such calls for structural uh, explanations. First, I think that the traditional issues underlying the left-right divide, as we know it, are less relevant than they used to be. It's important to notice that because we sometimes have the feeling that the left-right divide of political life is eternal. It's not. Actually, the left-right divide was not born with um, uh, political modernity. It was actually born at the beginning of the 20th century. When you look at the 19th century political divide, it was not left and right. In France, it was a republic versus a monarchy. In Britain, it was, in a way, the Whigs against uh, the, 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 the liberals, and at the end of the century, you have the socialists trying to emerge around what will become the Labour Party at, uh, in, the 19, uh, in the 1890s. When you look at Germany, it's the same. So all this left-right divide actually emerged in the 1900s in the different uh, countries. It basically was revolving around two major issues. The first issue was capitalism. Basically, you had the left parties that were uh, very uh, dubious about uh, market economy, calling for huge uh, reforms, often leading to a, to a quick or a slow pace towards the abolition of the market economy. Uh, on the other hand, you have obviously right-wing parties defending it, and I think that this issue around about capitalism lost much of its intensity since the 1970s, 1980s. On the one hand, you have right-wing parties that do not intend anymore on dismantling the welfare state. You can have adjustments, but they don't want to abolish it. And on the other hand, you have left-wing parties that have accepted a globalized market economy with two symbolic, I believe, uh, moments. The first one is 1993, when the French Socialist Party decided to conduct its economic policy within 
uh, European constraints. And the second one is probably 1995, when the Labour Party in Britain abolished Clause 4. That was a symbol of its commitment to a Marxist uh, doctrine. And we can also go back to Bad Godesburg and to the different moments of conversion in the different countries of the social democracy to capitalism. You have a second issue that provided for a, a, a meaning cleavage between the left and the right that was about individual rights. Basically, you have right-wing parties resisting the changes, what we call societal uh, changes, uh, women's rights, uh, individual rights, etc., and left-wing parties advocating it. I believe that these divisions, too, lost much of their intensity. Uh, on the one hand, you have right-wing parties that have adopted much of those that were once pioneered by the left. I believe that gay marriage is a pretty good example of that. Uh, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, it was seen impossible. 15 years ago, it was perceived as a very clear uh, divide between the left and the right. Now it has been implemented in most countries and, and right-wing parties do not advocate on uh, coming back on that. And on the other hand, left-wing parties, in a way, run short of mobilizing issues in that dimension. You still have uh, some debates, um, but uh, I believe that they are not as important as before, especially because they cater much to small subsets of the electorate, and they cannot be at the center of the political uh, debate. So in the meantime, and I think it's the most important thing, left and right parties turn a blind eye to the new challenges that arose. It's not because, in a way, capitalism and individual rights are less burning issues than they used to be, that our society obviously does not face important challenges, especially the one brought by the globalization process in all its dimensions. So we can mention territorial inequalities, labor market polarization, the difficulties uh, that uh, arise from uh, a multicultural uh, society, environment, the environment crisis, obviously, etc. I think that this blindness, and we can come back to that on this discussion, of the traditional parties has various causes. Some are political, some are sociological, and probably the most important one are ideological. I believe that both the left and the right have been quite naive towards uh, globalization in all its dimensions, uh, be it uh, economic, uh, which is uh, the most well-known, be it demographic with a migration issue, be it cultural with the feeling of uh, many people that they are, in a way, not living anymore in a world that they belong to and that they have a control of. And I believe this is, these ideological causes are very important because it's exactly the point that is made by populism. Basically, when you look at the populist movements, they have only, or they have some things in common, but the most important one is their take-back control uh, creed. The specificities of that are very different. When you look at economic policies, you can have a protectionist uh, in um, in the US with, uh, with, with Donald Trump. You can have a, a free trader in Brazil with, um, with a new uh, government. You can have a kind of almost socialist approach towards uh, the welfare state with, um, 
with Marine Le Pen in France uh, and very different approaches in, uh, in Britain or in the US. You can have all kinds of differences. You can have very harsh criticisms of the EU in France, in a way, less harsh criticism of the EU, at least as a market in the Eastern Europe. So you have all kinds of different approaches, but their common creed is take back control. And I think it's very important to understand this creed as a symptom of the massive failure of the left and um, right uh, countries. We'll come back also uh, to that in a discussion. Uh, I think that if we take for granted that populism is more of an attitude than an ideology, I believe that the ones that try to mount a counter-offensive against populism should not indulge in moral denunciations, but should try to understand the root causes of um, the votes for the populism and trying to provide an answer. I will try to remain short because, um, because Nicolas told me so. And the only thing I learned in politics is uh, being way too much talkative. So <laughs> I will try to, to conclude uh, quite um, French politics, exactly. Well, it's France plus politics. So it's, uh, it, the combination is terrible. <laughs> so just to, to, to summarize, I believe that the left-right divide is collapsing, that what comes next is not very clear. I believe that since populism is not that much of an ideology, it will not provide for a divide as sustainable and as long as the left-right divide has been. And I believe, hence, that the situation has become highly unstable. The first instability comes from um, the fact that, as I said, populism is not an ideology. So it means that they can change very quickly of a platform, and once they are in power, since their most important attitude is to trying to find out an enemy and scapegoating him for all the difficulties of society, it depends on the enemy, so on the left, it's the elite plus the wealthy, the top 1%. On the right, it's the elite plus the migrants. But when they are in power, they cannot deliver on specific public policies, so they run short uh, of enemies and they're trying to figure out new ones. So we see it in Eastern Europe, it's pretty clear. You have um, all kinds of enemies propping up the longer the government stays in power. So the central banks, the judges, the EU, etc., etc. So this course leads to uh, an an always more unstable and violent political life. First reason. Second reason is that I believe that the traditional uh, affiliations of the electorate has, have crumbled down. So when you look at the explanatory variable of voting behavior, you can see that the traditional ones, your age, your class, uh, your social class, your profession, the votes of your parents, etc., lose of their meaning. And when you look very closely at it, at it, and there were very interesting studies, especially about the French election in 2017, you can see that psychological variable become very important, for instance. So the first determinant of voting for Emmanuel Macron was being optimistic. And the first reason behind Marine Le Pen's vote was being pessimistic. All things kept equal. 
So obviously, when you're more educated, when you have more uh, professional perspective, when you live in big cities, you are more optimistic. But the reason is everything else kept equal. The more optimistic you have, the more likely you have you are to get um, to vote for Macron, and I think it's very important because it shows how unstable political life can become when loose variables as such are, are, are important drivers of uh, electoral behavior. The third thing, I believe, is that you have a lower cost of entry to electoral competition, so the left-right divide, I believe, outlived itself in a way for a kind of decade because it was a kind of oligopolistic approach towards the political life. So even if you were not happy with it, it was very difficult to create a new party, to raise funding, to attract militants, to get known by the average voter. And so for these reasons, uh, it was uh, very difficult uh, to challenge the establishment, the establishment's party. I believe this has changed. So there is a lower cost of entry to electoral competitions. Uh, I would say for the better and for the worse. Uh, but it means that you can create social movements much more easier than you used to. When you look uh, at the uh, Gilets Jaunes uh, in France, they did not go through the traditional uh, trade unions. When you look at the Indignados in Spain, uh, it's the same. When you look at the movements in America, Occupy Wall Street, etc., it's the same as well. When you look at the political parties themselves, it's exactly the same. You have a wave of new parties that have been created and that came to power to a speed that was deemed to be impossible. When you look at the... At the at, well, the Lega is not a new party, but the form it took was quite new. The Cinque Stelle is definitely a new party. The En Marche, en Marche is definitely a new party, etc. So I think that's the main uh, characteristic of our, uh, of our time. Thanks very much, David, for setting the scene. We have, uh, I guess, many of us will have tons of questions about Macron, and you've been very much, as you said at the beginning, uh, uh, an actor in, the, in, the, uh, in his ministry, in the campaign in 2017, and uh, in his first two years in power. So we'll come back to that. But first, uh, Zilke, um, how does it seem viewed from Brussels? Well, thank you very much for the invitation um, and for this very topical um, discussion. I think it's, it's a very good point in time to take up um, this question. I was just talking to an, an EU official yesterday who was uh, expressing his worries about the balkanization of politics. And I think that links in very nicely with what we were uh, talking about uh, today. And it's quite obvious when you look at it from Brussels that um, the more unstable politics um, become in, in member states, the more difficult it'll be to, to build a consensus in Brussels. And Brussels is all about consensus building. And what you mentioned earlier, Nicolas, um, the difficulties in finding a new commission president uh, illustrate uh, this point because it used to be the two blocs that got together, uh, the SND and the EPP in Parliament, and then you, you would have um, also on, on the um, level of um, uh, the heads of state and government, you'd have an agreement. But now we're, we're faced with a completely different situation. It's all more fluid. Um, with some luck, we're going to get someone uh, next Sunday. But it's kind of wait and see. 
At the same time, I find it very interesting the way you frame uh, the question. I think it's very much a French perspective to say that the left and the right are dead. Um, in my home country, which is Germany, there is a, a very similar discussion ha happening. Uh, but the main argument would be the big blocks are disappearing. Uh, there's a German word, it's a Volkspartei, and it's, the literal translation would be people's parties, but it doesn't quite capture it. It's more like the traditional forces are going down. Recently, someone from the Christian Democrats said to me, well, we're going down, but at least the gap between the Christian Democrats and the Social Democrats is remaining equal. <laughs> when they have reached zero, we'll be at 12%. And then he said, well, this is a joke, but actually it's not very funny. At the same time, we see resurrections. We, we see that um, Spain, um, it's a minority government, but still the social, socialists won. We saw the Social Democrats win in Denmark. Um, the Social Democrats in the Netherlands performed very well, uh, unexpectedly well, uh, uh, in the European elections. Uh, we're probably due to see uh, a change in Greece, a conservative government. And I would say that the left and right um, dichotomy still works fairly well in a couple of member states. And let's not forget, in some member states there were civil wars. And I think they've really... Um, They've set a scene, and, and these sort of feelings are quite entrenched when you go to Spain, when you look at Greece. Um, it still kind of determines your identity, what your grandparents did. So I think this left-right thing is not going to go away in all countries at equal speed. We're going to see very different evolutions in, in different countries. Um, you said the left and right divide is not eternal. I would very much advocate for... Uh, the left and right divide to be a very useful instrument in evaluating policies. Because what we are going to see is that all the big questions we're faced with in the EU, they have a left and right aspect. There is always the question of distribution. Take climate change. The biggest question in climate change is who's going to pay uh, for the fight? I mean, if we're going to set up all sorts of different policies, and there is a big push at the moment to come up with a lot of uh, new policies in that field, if we're going to do that, someone will have to pay for it. And obviously, there is a question of distribution. I mean, is it going to be the users? Uh, how fair can it be? Won't it be the poor who will be uh, sort of hit by it uh, in, a, in a bigger dimension? I mean, just think of heating. Uh, if, heat, if the cost for heating will go up enormously, and heating is a big block in, in CO2, if the cost of a, an airplane ticket is going to up by 5 or 10 euros, I mean, a lot of people say, well, I'll pay for that. But some people will say, no, I can't afford it. Um, this is not you know, saying that we should, but there is just a big question about distribution. The same applies to migration. Uh, when you look at migration, there is the question, you know, Who's coming in? Who will these people compete with on the labor market? Obviously, it's less skilled people who are more afraid of changes. Uh, companies are probably very open, especially in, in those countries and with aging societies. Companies will be open to let in people. They're going to benefit. Um, but, but then it's only certain people who are going to affect it by this. Um, look at uh, the digital world. Again, we see certain parts of society will be affected a lot more than others. So the question, do we want a strong state? 
how much redistribution do we want? It's not going to go away. And these, these questions have to be addressed. Why am I insisting so much on these points? Because I think that the question of redistribution is not something that is that much actively looked at in Brussels. In Brussels, people are very busy with regulation, but regulation causes then changes that addresses the question of redistribution. Um, you know, people will say, oh, well, the EU budget is very small, it's just 1% of, um, of GDP, you know, compared to the budget in, you know, government spending in France is like 56%. So obviously you can do a lot more redistribution uh, with a budget of that size. Uh, so I think it's very important to keep the question of redistribution uh, in, in mind when, when people are going um, to decide on policies uh, in the next uh, few years. The question of left and right is also very important when we look at populists, because no one is going to deny that we have left-wing populists and right-wing populists. The question is very relevant when we look at the populists in Parliament who are trying to form groups. Uh, it'll be interesting to see whether they will work as blocks. My guess would be no. Uh, they are too diverse, too different to become really strong forces. But they can be very disruptive. So that will be something to look at uh, in, in the next um, coming years. Something I find interesting is also the way populists change the discourse of other parties. Um, that is something I, I think we're going to see a lot more in, in the next five years in, in Brussels, also obviously in member states. Already in the past, we have seen how they've changed this discourse and how they have introduced this element of us against the others. For me, that is really the heart of populism, that you create these differences. We have seen that, interestingly enough, how it seeps into the discourse of the mainstream parties, for example, in trade. In trade, all of a sudden, the Social Democrats also and the Greens had this debate of us versus the others. It was us versus multinationals. You know, we had these enemies that were sort of created, monsters that were created. Other, other lines of discourse we have seen is obviously us versus the elite. That's very much something that happens in, in France. You know, the elite or even in the US. Brexit also was us versus uh, the EU. Sort of the scapegoat, the introduction of the scapegoat in politics. I find that a very scary, it's an interesting element, but it's also scary because it's a bit of a passe-partout. You can, you can uh, create all sorts of um, antagonism uh, with that. And we see how it really um, influences um, the, the other parties and that will really be an element um, to, to watch out for. Um, I think I'll keep it very short and just want to say, for me, left and, and right, those elements is a bit like when you watch a Netflix series and you think someone's dead and then you, you, go, you see the next episode and they're alive and kicking. I just watched Line of Duty, you know, for me. So it's far, far too early to, to kind of come to a conclusion on that one. That's a good segue, segue to uh, the slightly regional approach, I think, that we'll have with Otilia. Otilia works a lot on Central and Eastern Europe, so um, is there such a thing as a left and right there? Well, I, I, I really like um, um, uh, David's point that uh, we are um, 
in the world in which politics is really defined by changing uh, economic and, and social context, and that every sort of dominant divide in, in politics is defined by uh, the socio-economic context of the, of the day, and perhaps the one that we live right now is changing. Uh, one thing to say is that, uh, as with every transition, what we know is what we're transitioning from, but we have no idea what we're transitioning to. And uh, unfortunately, or maybe even fortunately, because it makes my job more interesting, this is perfectly normal. Uh, we will first have to have to figure out what is going to be the dominant divide of politics of tomorrow in order to understand what is the most likely system we are going to face. Now, in Central and Eastern Europe, Silke, Silke mentioned that uh, there are you know, left-wing uh, populists and right-wing po populists. Well, we don't really do left-wing populists these days because we had 40 years of them. But what we do fantastically is right-wing populists. And uh, there are three reasons for this. And uh, most of them have to do with control, just as, just as we discussed before. And uh, those are three crises that came one after another. Let me sort of rewind back into the 1990s when we were transitioning from what we knew, and that was the you know, the communist system into something that we didn't know, uh, which was the market economy, uh, which was democracy, which was liberalism. And that was the dominant narrative of the day, you know. That was the only game in town. That's the, that's the way it was put. It was liberalism, democracy, market economy, and globalization. That's it. Now, that is not to say that everybody in the society was on board with that. Uh, there are, as, as we mentioned, uh, less skilled people who are typically afraid of change, who are afraid of uh, incoming immigrants or incoming technologies or uh, incoming imports that will, that will challenge whatever they produce. Uh, but since it was the only game in town and it was understood that the transition is absolutely necessary for the very economic survival of these countries, the challenges uh, were very muted, if non-existent. The only surviving communist party in Central and Eastern Europe is the, is the Communist Party of... Um, Czechia and, uh, and Moravia, and then sort of reformed communists in Romania and, and Bulgaria, but other than that, they are all dead. <clears throat> and there is a reason for it, because they basically lost their, lost their constituency. But the mindset that was behind the protectionism of, uh, of you know, smaller markets and nationalism, it didn't go away. Uh, those voters just uh, thought that their ideas were perhaps A, not popular, B, not to be voiced because they were not a part of uh, what the society would accept. Now, that has changed quite rapidly, and this is because of uh, three crises that came one after another. Now, in the 1990s, we believed that after joining the EU, the world was going to be paradise on earth. You know, it was going to bring prosperity, stability, and everything was going to be great. Now, most of these countries joined the European Union in 2004, some of them in 2007. What hits in 2008 is a major financial crisis, which brings the economic crisis into these countries, where we used to believe that having large banks participating in other markets was actually going to bring stability. So that's the first fundamental challenge to the premise that these countries and the whole region believed for a good 20 years. Now, the second challenge came with austerity. We also believed that the uh, European Union is going to bring economic stability and prosperity through redistribution. Now, then what ne the next thing happens that after the 2008-2009 very long, very deep recession in some countries, many of the governments fall. And uh, mostly across the region, with the exception of Hungary, all of these governments were centre-right. Now, the centre-right collapses because they cannot deliver uh, economic, uh, economic success as they promised. And uh, what comes are sort of new parties that are promising pretty much the same, but more based on business and more based on sort of direct democracy, what have you. It was pretty visible, actually, in Czech Republic. Uh, 
and those enter into fairly broad coalitions because they tend to be smaller parties, not particularly stable, and they come to power in sort of 2009, 2010, uh, and the next thing that comes is, uh, is the austerity crisis, when the EU says, well, look, guys, you know, I know that you would like to sort of increase your, your spending, uh, but actually we're going to cap it at 3% and everybody is going to aim for balanced budgets. Now, that's not necessarily what coalition governments consisting of several parties, uh, some of them centre-left, some of them brand new, uh, delivering for their, for their uh, disgruntled populations want to hear, but they have to implement it. And what they do is to point to the EU saying, well, those are the guys telling us to do that. And that's the second challenge uh, that, that hits the perceptions of Central and East European populations as to how wrong they may have been in the 1990s. The third one is the cultural one when it comes to the immigration crisis of 2014-2015. Now, I'm very sorry to say that, uh, but it, there is no avoiding saying that these societies in Central and Eastern Europe are closed and often fairly racist. Um, we don't really have immigrants other than Ukrainians, uh, but we do have problems integrating any kind of minority that doesn't look woke or quack like us. And uh, I think the perfect example of that is the Roma minority. And let alone that somebody would be of a different religion, you might as well forget that. Uh, I find it that fear of immigration is usually the highest in the regions that have no immigrants whatsoever. And the reason why they have no immigrants is exactly because they would never integrate them. Um, and that sort of created a um, sort of compounding economic, social and cultural insecurities that call for control, that call for somebody to come and sort it out, that call for uh, a strong leader to come in and offer simple solutions to very complex problems. And that's how populism is born, at least in Central and Eastern Europe. And it really doesn't matter from which side of political spectrum the person comes. The most important thing is that they come from the outside of politics, that they talk very loud and that they offer very simple solutions. They tend to create parties that are centered on them, uh, that uh, talk to a very broad segment of population. They typically promise both sides. They promise low taxes to businesses. They promise them protection of their, of their market share. And they promise social spending to, to the population. Uh, we would normally call law and justice in Poland uh, a right-wing party. But look at the social spending. I mean, the social spending is enormous if you compare it to any other, any other party other than the social democrats in Romania in the past couple of years. So it is really hard to call them a right-wing party anymore. It is really a party that that caters for the, uh, for, for the public demand, and that's the definition of populist. The problem is that uh, loud uh, political leaders who uh, offer simple solutions to complex problems don't like to be challenged, and that's the problem with institutions that, uh, that Nicola uh, suggested, because the first thing these people do when they come to power is to make sure that internally they don't have a systemic opposition when it comes to implementing the changes they want. And that um, happens in two ways. Either you have a constitutional majority like they did in Hungary, so you can gut the powers of other institutions so they can't challenge you, or you have to go by hook and crook when you don't have constitutional majority, as it happens in Poland, and you're you know, cutting pension age of judges or what have you, so that you can place your own people into those institutions and make sure they don't challenge you. <clears throat> I wonder which one of them lasts longer, because, <clears throat> okay, you need constitutional majority again to change whatever the guys before you changed. Um, but if you place people into positions that have uh, statutory limitations of you know, being appointed for life or being appointed for 15 to, to 18 years in case of some constitutional judges, then those people are going to sit there and be a systemic challenge to anybody who comes after the populists. So it is going to be very difficult to reverse any changes that the populists of today actually introduce. 
Now, the effects that it has, especially on business, it's really interesting because uh, if we, the, the reason populism is so rife is that uh, the ones who feel most threatened are the ones that uh, have the populist bent. So if you want to cater for them, you have to, have, uh, have to use populism protectionist language. Now, we see in these countries that uh, there is a massive labor crunch, you know, especially in uh, manufacturing, uh, IT, healthcare, and uh, they are not open to immigration from any other countries than you know, the ones around them, preferably speaking very similar language. <clears throat> and I have seen uh, companies, for example, in Slovakia, in automotive sector where the labor crunch is, uh, is actually very visible, actually turning to automation when they find out that the governments, even if they were supporting immigration, nobody really wants to come. Uh, they actually turn to automation, and I wonder that the next challenge uh, is not going to be defined in, in, that particular, in that particular divide of advancing digitalization and the protection of society uh, from the effects of digitalization that we cannot really, uh, really assess today because we just have no knowledge of what it could be. Sorry. Was uh, I too fast? <laughs> very very thought-provoking, obviously. Uh, question, uh, question to David. Um, you didn't um, I'm sure you've had this argument before. Is Macron a populist? Uh, so you said populist populist or not a populist in your analysis? So first, I think you have to define what, um, what populism is. So I believe, as I said, it is an attitude. In a sense, it is, I believe, three, three things. The first one is us versus them. That is, all the ills that plague the community have a simple and single source that is an enemy that is, in a way, outside of the community of the united people. So then you can replicate the scheme uh, in different uh, perspectives. And as I said, it can be uh, the migrants, it can be the elite, it can be the one person, the wealthy, etc. Uh, as long as you want. But this is a very important scheme. So in that dimension, Macron is definitely no populist. Actually, he was even mocked for what we call in French uh, la pensée complexe. That is his uh, habit of saying en même temps, <laughs> in the same way as you, as, you, as you may know it, which is in a way exactly the reverse of this uh, populist, um, of this populist um, attitude. The second thing I think is that defines uh, populism is um, a violent attitude against uh, all the public institutions that precisely enforce uh, pluralism in democratic life and restrain uh, the pure exercise of uh, political uh, power and that in the light of the populists are supposed to inhibit the people's uh, will. That is, in Eastern Europe is in a way the laboratory of that, the central bank, the judges, the media. To that extent, I don't believe that Macron is a populist. There is, however, and I think it is very important uh, for, for Macron and for all those that try to provide an alternative for populism, is to understand what populists get right. Because obviously you have some people that are racist, xenophobic, in a way you have a certain percentage of the population that will always, uh, always be like that. But you cannot understand the, populism, the populist rise 
in that perspective, because you have a lot of people that now vote for either Le Pen or Salvini or Orban, you name it, that didn't vote for them before. And you have to understand the reasons that led them to this, um, to this attitude. So this is exactly the, the, the center of the, uh, of the talk we had. I, think, I believe it is a disgust against the failures of the established parties. And it's very important for what we call the progressist to take that into account and to offer uh, solutions where our predecessors felt. And I think in that perspective, Macron needs to take into account the demands that are expressed through the populist vote, however distorted they may be by the leaders. So the third component is the third essentially component. the questioning the establishment. Exactly. And, exactly. Um, exactly. Okay. Um, I'll come back with other questions, but uh, I'll already open it up to the floor. So I encourage you to um, first make eye contact. Uh, Introduce yourself briefly and uh, make it sound like a question. Um, and uh, relatively uh, succinct, please. Uh, thanks very much. Um, uh, my, my name's. Yeah, you need to wait for the microphone because some people uh, are watching this on the web, and if you don't have the microphone, they don't know what you're saying. Can you hear me? Yes. My name's Tamlin. I'm from um, uh, public affairs firm DRD Partnership. Um, really interesting panel discussion, thank you. I just wanted to pick up on what David had said um, early on. Um, you talk about the old variables becoming less relevant, social class, etc. Um, would you say then that in the sort of context of the left-right discussion that we're really looking at a cultural divide as opposed to an economic divide? And again, Silke mentioned this uh, looking at uh, right and left, and looking at the, um, I guess, the erosion of the traditional economic policies of right and left. You have um, so-called populist right, right of centre parties like PIS that are actually um, increasing social uh, expenditure. So uh, I'd like your reflections on that. Let's take a few questions. Kurt Geisert, I'm one of the guys in the House of European History. I have a question uh, to David. Um, Spitzenkandidaten, uh, Mr. Macron uh, does not like this, uh, this idea in the absence of transnational lists. Does Timmermans help Macron in the moment um, in refusing to support Weber together with uh, another coalition partner, which is not easy? Also for Martin Schulz, five years ago, it was not so easy. He, he first had to digest that he was not first. So does Timmermans help Macron in the moment to kill the idea of Spitzenkandidat? I noticed that we, it took us 45 minutes to get to the commission appointment process, which I think is commendable. Um, any other question for this first round? If not, uh, let's turn back to our panelists and starting with you, David. No, so for, concerning the, the cultural divide, it depends I wouldn't frame it that way, anyway, because I believe that cultural issues, it depends on what you mean by that. It can be either the kind of individual rights perspective, that is, gay marriage, gender equality, etc., etc., or it can be the migration issue. I believe both are very different. I believe that individual rights, in a way, we are seeing the exhaustion 
of that dimension as a political, in a way, a, a center to the political discussion for the reasons that its broad ideals have been adopted. And actually, when you look at, uh, it's very striking in France, I'm sorry, because I obviously have a certain French bias, but when you look at Marine Le Pen, she's not interested at all in reversing this course and appealing to kind of traditional Catholic values. It's not at all what Marine Le Pen is doing. She doesn't care at all about gay marriage, actually. Some say that she was even a supporter of that. So it's not, and I think it's very important. It doesn't mean that it will not have constituencies, people that will advocate going further in that direction, people who will refrain it, but I don't believe it will be central to the political discussion. Migration is very different. Migration, obviously, is very central in a way, both in terms of frontiers, people who get in, people who don't, and in terms of integration and how you manage a multicultural societies, in a way, all Western societies, Eastern Europe is very different, but all Western Europe societies have become de facto multicultural. You have people from various religions, from various, um, stemming from various immigration waves, etc., and how you manage this multicultural society. If you believe that you will have a left that will say, it's no problem at all. I mean, we can, we, 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 we don't want to, to impose any duties about integration, etc. I mean, a, a political community sustains by itself only if people abide by the rules and by the laws. And on the other hand, you have a right that says, I will defend a traditional identity as the way we were uh, 70 years ago. I believe it wouldn't work either way. So I believe it's very important to take into account, obviously, the need to uh, defend people against racism, against uh, discrimination. We talk a lot about it in the books that uh, Nicolas uh, uh, very nicely uh, mentions. But since we are in, uh, in, in Bruegel, I will also underline the fact that it's very important to understand from a liberal perspective that you also need a certain cohesion of the community if you want to be able to have a state, a political government that does more than just protecting the individual rights of the people. So if you want to have a strong welfare state, if you want to have strong civic involvement, then you need people to share something in common above their various identity differences. So that's why I'm very afraid of identity politics. I believe that if the liberals think they can play this card, they are terribly wrong. They are terribly wrong in terms of politics. When you look at the democratic, at the Democrats in the US, I think it's the core of their mistake. Saying that we can build a cohesion talking to Hispanics, then talking to um, the Afro-Americans, then talking to the women, then talking, and then having some constituencies that add up to make a majority, it doesn't make a majority because it doesn't provide for a common goal. And then you have people that engage in identity fights, in cultural war, as you, in a way, as was implicit in your, in your question, and I believe it would be terrible. So then I think that it's important for the liberals to have this kind of uh, 
cultural cohesion dimension in mind. And that's one of the reasons why I believe that economic issues are still very important. I mean, when we think about the important issues of the day, we talked about migration, but I mean, territorial inequalities is something that is very important. Uh, I believe that the gap between the most important cities that benefit from uh, globalization and the rest of the country is both very striking in economic terms and in electoral terms. When you look at Brexit, uh, London voted to remain, the, re the northern part of the country voted to exit. When you look in France, the cities vote for Macron. Uh, some parts of rural France vote strongly for Le Pen. When you look in Italy, it's much more regional divide, uh, true enough. When, but when you look at the US, it's the coast versus, as they say, a flyover America, etc. So I think that FAS, for instance, is a very important, uh, is a very important dimension that should be taken into account by the, by the liberals. And I believe that this led us to, to, to a point you made before. Uh, I don't say that the redistribution issue doesn't exist. Obviously, it does exist. <coughs> but I believe that taking the society as a whole, it is less central than it used to be. Because when you look at the European countries, on average, we still have strong safety nets that make basically also the difference between Europe and, for instance, the, 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 the USA. But there is, so the, the monetary redistribution is taken into account by the welfare state. But you have other kinds of redistribution that are not. And for instance, the territorial inequality is very important, but it doesn't frame easily in terms of left and right. I mean, what's the left position on that? What's the right position on that? I don't know. You were supposed to have a right that was defending the countryside, the rural parts of the country against the cosmopolitic cities, basically the idea we have about uh, being very conservative. On the other hand, you have a left that is supposed to stand for those that are uh, left aside by the economic transformation. So what is left, what is right, I don't know in that perspective. So I believe we have to frame things a bit differently. So the other question, and I'll ask you to be slightly briefer, is you guys are killing the Spitzen. Uh, what do you have to say about that? Uh, so on the Spitzen candidate, I believe that in a way it's exactly the, the, the result of the political situation we are discussing. We did at the national level, but at the EU level it's amplified. You don't have, obviously I don't believe that at the European Parliament you have a left-right divide for obvious reasons. The first one is that you have a, a fragmentation of the, of the Parliament to a scale that has not been seen before. Uh, the second thing is that people did not vote for either a left or a right majority at the European Parliament. They vote still out of um, a national uh, uh, list. And that's uh, one of the things that uh, Macron, I believe, rightly, um, rightly uh, mentioned. So having a Spitzenkandidat in that, uh, in that uh, dimension is very artificial because uh, you have a guy no one voted for in the different uh, countries, and for uh, heading a coalition that did not exist previously to the, to the, to the, to the election. So I believe it's, it's very artificial. Then I believe that it, le it leads us to the question of how will EU politics 
be managed in the future. I believe it's even more undetermined than, um, more uncertain than what we see at the national levels because the major issues that are discussed at the European level, as we say, environment uh, issues, trade policies, uh, migration, in a way, monetary integration, etc., are exactly those that are the less central to the left-right divide. In a way, redistribution through the welfare state is much of a national prerogative. So I believe that in that dimension, the EU Parliament is as much a result of the fragmentation of the national landscapes as a laboratory for what will be the future of a national politics. Zilke, uh, I think you, you, you may have things to add to this, and I also have a question to you, which is about the Greens, because we didn't uh, speak a lot about the Greens. Obviously, they are becoming the, the first party in Germany, uh, but also... Uh, uh, a surprising surge in France and the UK uh, through the European Parliament election. So uh, uh, can you give us a sense of how they fit in the discussion we've had so far? Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to add quickly uh, two points to, uh, to what you just said. I find it interesting the way populism also seeps into the discussion about the Spitzenkandidat because now people are saying we want to end those backroom deals. I'm sorry, but... Juncker was elected in a backroom deal. And now everyone is presenting themselves as clean, <laughs> truer than true and, you know, being like the real good guy. Uh, so it's just very interesting how, how the debate evolves on that one. And as you said, I mean, uh, only Germans could vote for Weber. So, I mean, it's very obvious that this is not a very democratic process the way it is without uh, transnationalists. Um, the other thing I wanted to add on um, uh, redistribution, we haven't spoken about fear. I haven't heard the word fear. And I think fear is very important, because also in what you said about Eastern Europe, um, fear of decline. You know, we see something very interesting in Germany. People are as well off as never before. And yet again, there uh, is quite a high percentage of voting <coughs> for a right-wing populist party. And I think it's this fear of a personal decline in income or insecurity. Um, so um, redistribution, you said there are safety nets, but if those safety nets are not perceived as working well, I think they, they're not good enough. Um, and that's probably, well, we also see populism in, in Northern Europe, but I think their safety nets are a lot better than, than what we have. And, and I think as soon as they have fear coming in, um, it's, it's about perception, and that is something that needs to be taken up um, by, by politicians. The Greens, it's a fascinating topic. I think we could have a panel just on the Greens. <laughs> um, in a way, I think they, they, they were quite successful. They, um, they had this tactic of presenting themselves as a fairly empty canvas, and then people could project a lot onto that. I have a feeling in France, a lot of people who didn't uh, want to vote for, for Macron or Le Pen just voted for the Greens. Similar in Britain, it was also, they were fed up. It's, it's also a bit, uh, for educated intellectual people who are fed up with mainstream politics, they turn to the Greens. Uh, in Germany, 
Um, yeah, with also a fresh force, they were voting for people who are very tired of the Grand Coalition. They think nothing's moving. So you've got people, you know, leaders uh, that come with a breath of fresh air. We don't really know what they want. Interestingly enough, in Belgium, you can see the Greens, North and South, in the re recent elections, the ones in Flanders were very precise about taxes, what they want to do. They didn't fare well. So this confirms my, my hypothesis of this empty canvas. Blank canvas, yeah. Yeah, blank canvas. And then you, you project your, your desires of an alternative way of doing politics. I think a lot of people... Would you say the, the German Greens still broadly align with the left-right divide and our party of the left? Or uh, how, how, no. how is that viewed? Well, that's, I think it depends a bit on certain issues. Maybe on free trade, they're very much on the left. Um, but um, I, would, I think they have come a long way. They've, they've become sort of a, a mainstream party. And, and it's really, you have to look at it really individually, issue by issue. But I see them as very much a, cent, a centrist force. Otilia... Um I was thinking of uh, Turkey when we were speaking because uh, you you mentioned the gutting of institutions and you know uh, Turkey is arguably even farther advanced uh, in there than uh, any Central or Eastern European member state. Um, and still, uh, we saw what happened with the municipal election in Istanbul. We don't know what will happen next, but uh, I think there is a there's a very strong signal there. Do you get any sense that we may be past peak populism in Central and Eastern Europe, or do you think it's going to be, uh, you know, more populism uh, before uh, it gets to less? I think we're getting there, actually. Um, I would say that uh, the results of uh, EU elections already suggest that the counter-reaction uh, in, uh, in a number of societies against, um, against the populism of recent years is already increasing. And this is because if, you know, sort of five, ten years ago, it's the voters of the populist, populist leaders these days that felt that their existential interests were threatened. It is the more liberal, more urban part of the society that is now increasing in activism and uh, looking for uh, political leaders to elect in order to protect what they now see as their vital interests being, being threatened. If in uh, elections in 2014, 2015, we have seen these voters not turning up for election at all because they were disappointed with the parties they used to vote for and did not see an alternative that they wanted to support, now realizing that if they don't turn up uh, on the election day, uh, their real sort of fundamental economic, uh, social and cultural interests are going to be put at risk. And we have seen that in a, in a number of countries uh, across Central and Eastern Europe, that in the latest European elections, uh, this, num um, this group of voters has turned out uh, to, to the on the election day uh, again. Even in the countries, I think Hungary is actually a really good example where uh, Fidesz uh, gained, I think, 52% in the in the election. But we have seen uh, a rise of, uh, of several uh, opposition parties that was fairly unexpected, that suggests that uh, actually the opposition may be getting their act together even, even in Hungary, where we did not have a serious opposition for, for at least eight years now. Uh, the same is true, for example, about uh, Slovakia, where uh, the, the sort of urban, liberal, pro-European parties did extremely well in, uh, in European elections, actually beating the trend towards the far-right, really nasty kind of far-right, not you know, the far-right wearing suits, but the far-right wearing uniforms and wearing torches. 
uh, which we were really afraid because those guys got 25% in the recent um, uh, presidential election in the first round. Uh, so the sense of uh, uh, sort of European liberal values being put at risk is now forcing the voters that were inactive for several years returning back to uh, back to uh, back on uh, to to vote on the on the election day, and um, I find that once you find the momentum for these challenging parties, it actually helped them to increase in the next round of elections. So I would suggest that the next one to watch is actually the Polish parliamentary election in October, <laughs> and to see how does the situation develop there. Because let's not forget the PIS has a majority of exactly three in the parliament. And this is because the centre-left did not break into the parliament because they went as a coalition and missed uh, the increased threshold of 8%. Uh, if that changes in this election, uh, it could very much uh, change the political situation and that would probably be, be a, at least a perceived turning point because of the size of the country. So Poland is interesting for the theme of our panel, right? Because you have the platform or whatever it's called now, uh, which basically campaigns, if I get it correctly, against PIS. Uh, and then there's Biedron saying, well, the left-right divide is not dead and here, am I, uh, here I am on the central left, right? So uh, is it a general pattern that you see uh, in Central and Eastern Europe that when the alternative to populists re-emerge, it does re-emerge with a left-right divide or rather not? Not necessarily. Actually, the, uh, um, some, some of the new parties, for example, in Czech Republic, the sort of most visible alternative party is the Pirate Party. It's difficult to place them anywhere else but uh, in the liberal middle. Uh, and, uh, for example, in Hungary, it would be, you know, a democratic coalition. Well, that's on the left. Uh, but perhaps momentum that we should be watching, especially in, uh, in Budapest and other, other urban areas. In, uh, in Slovakia, it was uh, progressive Slovakia, which is uh, allied with ALDE, uh, that actually changed the election pattern, I would, I would argue. Uh, so not necessarily... New Europe. Sorry? Now renew Europe. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so uh, yeah. Sorry, apologies. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, and quite, I, I noted that David was referring to liberals. So you know. Uh. Yeah. So 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 it's really difficult. You know. Yeah. I mean, what do, what do you call centre right and centre left in uh, in Central and Eastern Europe? Because even uh, in the aftermath of the of the fall of communism, uh, many of these countries did not develop uh, a usual centre centre left centre right divide or left and right divide. Um, examples, again, you know, I would name Slovakia, where there is more of a dichotomy of large tent party with protective, protective approach and then a bunch of little parties uh, challenging, challenging them for power. The, the best defined left and right divide has probably been in Czech Republic and that has collapsed completely, especially in the, in the last European election, perhaps Romania. Let's see if we have more questions from the floor. I'm surprised that... Uh If we have none, I have more. <laughs> a question about uh, Macron again, uh, David. I, I put you on the spot. Uh, you said one. So you said there are three features of populism, right? Us versus them, questioning the institutions, questioning the establishment. And you told us Macron is not number one, not number two, but he's number three, right? Um, and I, I, I thought that was very thought-provoking, but I may I challenge you a bit about number two so, uh, institutions, uh, because there are a lot of debates in France about 
freedom of demonstrations, uh, a draft law, which I think was not passed in the end, but that was viewed as a, a restricting uh, freedom of uh, demonstration excessively, uh, and Macron's whole attitude to the media. I mean, it's no secret that Macron and the media have a, a, a somewhat rocky relationship, and that's one of the institutions that you actually singled out uh, as uh, ones that uh, matters in this conversation. So can you, can you tell us a bit more about how you view this, um, this, uh, these tensions or, 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 or these uh, controversies uh, from your perspective of having spent so many years with him? Uh, so I believe that first that the issue, each issue is, uh, is very different. When you look at the demonstrations, it was something of a, of a normal, in a way, discussion between the executive, the parliament, uh, the judges, and especially the constitutional court. You had important and violent demonstrations in France, which I think, and it's very important to underline, were quite well managed by the police forces because it did not result in any uh, casualty, given the violence and the, the intensity and the extension of the demonstrations. It was, uh, it was very, very valuable. Then you have a ministry for the interior, a government, that asks for new uh, powers to, uh, to, uh, to pursue the violent demonstrators, because demonstrations are not what they used to be, given that they are not organized through well-known organizations because of the technological revolutions we have. You have a government that pushes the bills. The constitutional court says okay on some things, no on others. And where Macron is no populist at all is that it was Macron himself that asked the constitutional court to have an opinion on the draft bill. The constitutional court says no on some, uh, on some parts of it. It was not adopted. So I don't believe it, it has nothing to do with populism. It's a kind of normal dialectic between a constitutional court and a government with a president uh, acting as a, in a way, arbiter uh, between, between the two. When you look at the media, it's also a very different because you don't have any willingness of control of the freedom of speech uh, of the media. Actually, when you look at some of the press coverage, I believe that France is still, uh, an <laughs> France is uh, obviously a, a country with, where, where media's independence are very respected. Given that being said, you had Macron that was even willing to take some risk in its relations with the media. One of his defining moments of his one-year anniversary of election was an interview made by the two toughest guys in the French media. For those who know him, uh, Edouard Plenel, who is uh, the chief editor of Mediapart, uh, a very left uh, internet media and a very harsh critique of Macron, he was invited to interview the president. So no president put himself at such a risk in front of the television, etc. So by exactly saying that I'm accused of neglecting the media, I will be interviewed by the two toughest guys in France to show that I'm ready to, find, to, to face any, any kind of criticism. Then, I believe that the, and it leads us to, to a criticism of establishment. 
I believe that it's very important for the parties to reconnect directly with the aspirations of the people. You had the professionalization of the, organi of the political organizations since the 1970s, 1990s, that created a kind of disconnect between the elected people and their electorate. The first made career, the second ones were less and less willing to engage voluntarily in organization, I mean membership declined, and politicians began to see society excessively through the lenses of the medias and the pollsters. That's how they knew what the electorate was concerned about. I believe it was a big mistake. And I believe that what Macron tried to do was to find a direct, uh, more direct connection with the people, which is something that, after all, should be central in democracy, not instead of the media, but in addition to them. And it was very fruitful. I just give an example, and I will stop that. For instance, we started en marche with what we called la grande marche. So it was sending people uh, to knock doors to doors, not to sell a program, but to listen to what people had to say about the state of the society. When we launched it, it was it provoked a lot of laughter among commentators saying, you really need to knock on people's door to know what they are concerned about. I mean, just look at the polls, unemployment, insecurity, etc., etc." And we said, okay, we'll find out if we find something else. And something that was very important was all the testimonies we had by women of all social classes about harassment. Then Macron decided, based on that, to pledge to make uh, the fight for... Uh, for gender equality and especially about, uh, against uh, uh, violences against women, the great cause of his mandate. It caused also a lot of laughter. But it was a year, and that is something very important, a year before the Weinstein scandal and all the Me Too movement, etc. So I believe that when you reconnect directly with the electorate, you can find things that the pollsters and the media do not. So this is, this is what Macron tried to do. So, but in... I think it's no exaggeration to say that in Paris and in the conversation in France, you have this running theme of what has become known in French as la démocrature, right? This, uh, this notion that we have the institutions of democracy, but there is an element of dictatorship in the way that Macron exercises it. Uh, in contrast, so the story goes, with certainly his immediate predecessor and possibly his several predecessors. So if if his behavior is as exemplary as you just described, what's your explanation of the salience of the theme uh, in the current uh, perceptions? Well, I believe there are different reasons. The first one is uh, obviously a contrast with uh, the predecessors, namely with François Hollande. The first thing is that you have a president that... Uh, uh, implements the platform as he promised to, that does it uh, very uh, quickly, and that creates a vision. So for, 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 for certain people, it's an, it's an asset. I mean, it's, uh, it's efficiency and, in a way, accountability, because he does what he promised. For others, it's uh, too, uh, too quick. It does not take into account uh, <coughs> demonstrators, trade union, as it should be, and it's authoritarianism. I'm without surprise on the first side. Then, I believe that there is something that is also very important, is that you have a political landscape that was 
totally turned upside down in France, particularly, but it also, be, it also happens in other countries. And you have a lot of people, not as much in the media, but in the mainstream parties, members of mainstream parties, that felt more than defeated by the election, humiliated by that. So I think that they resort to, uh, to all kinds of agreements to try to delegitimize Emmanuel Macron because what he did was very different from the others. He did not provide for an alternative that would make the socialists come back to power or the conservatives five years after. He, in a way, really changed the political landscape and it's very violent for people that live through it in several decades. Then, and this is my, my, my last point, uh, I believe that there is something which, on the Macron side, we failed to do in the first two years, which is not the direction or the reforms we implemented, it's the way we do it. For good reasons, we decided to act very quickly, to implement things, because we wanted to have results, we wanted people to have confidence in the politicians uh, in doing, uh, in making good on their promises, and to that extent, I believe that we succeeded. But we lost part of what made the campaign a success story, that is exactly this connection with society. It was very important during the campaign because when Macron started, he had nothing. He had no, uh, he had no funding, he had no uh, supporters, he had no, uh, uh, like, no MPs, uh, no, uh, no, uh, no, no city councils, etc. So all he had was his willingness to convince ordinary people to engage in his movement. And that was how our march was created, and that was the main reason of uh, the victory, this connection with society. This is something that we lost a bit when we went in power because we merged in the traditional figures of the state, of the way society is governed, etc. And we did not create this kind of... Uh, uh, I'm trying to, to find the English word. The connection. The connections, the relais, <laughs> within, uh, within societies. All parties had it in the 1960s, in the 1970s. The left had the trade union. The right had the kind of uh, local notables and stuff. We didn't have this kind of uh, connection with the country. And I think it's very important to recreate it. I mean, that's the reason of the title. When we say the progrès ne tombe pas du ciel, progress doesn't come out of the sky. It, uh, it means that if you want to, to engineer social change, you need to mobilize all parts of society and not only the government and the, and the assembly. I think it's very important. I think it's at the heart of what the president is trying to do after the, the gilet jaune moment. Zilke and uh, Otilia, um, I'd like you to comment a bit on what you observe in member states other than France, or maybe in France as well, um, in terms of this shift in politics, the rise of new parties, the erosion of traditional Volkspartei, and how much of that is domestic, how much of that has international influences? So, so do you think that there is, a, in a way, a kind of peer effect that the fact that people see traditional parties eroding in the countries next door contributes to the erosion of, uh, of traditional parties domestically, or would you say all of this is completely locally? Uh, determined? 
I would argue that it is, it is locally determined, but at the same time, obviously, it is influenced by what is going on in the rest of the world because, you know, globalization just changes the way people live. I mean, take Brexit, for example. Uh, I know, like, the, the father-in-law of, of a friend of mine um, who's British said, yeah, if I vote for Brexit, he's an engineer, and he said, we'll go back to the good times, you know, when Britain had a lot of industry, uh, we, you know, we'll just uh, stop deindustrialization. Um, and I think these kind of naive ideas of going back to better times, that is something that influences a lot of people. So, uh, and now, I mean, we could have more trade wars, all kind of insecurity that is happening, that, that heavily influences people. But I doubt that someone, uh, you know, is looking at Italy or France um, and saying, oh, I'll vote for another party. I think that is a more personal decision. I mean, also, when I, you know, when I look at AfD at the at the right uh, wing party in Germany, it's not because people in Poland or in the Czech Republic vote in a certain way. But hasn't there been a bit of that effect that you know people read into media about populists rising everywhere and that kind of breaks a, a psychological barrier, or is that uh, fictional? I would, yeah, it sounds a bit fictional to okay. me. It's, it's more, it's, I think it's more about relating to people. It's something, I mean, my, my parents told me um, that AFD um, were the people most active in their neighborhood. And would you, you know, on a Saturday when you'd go to a market, they'd be there talking to people. And I think that, you know, creating a link and, and really relating to people, that is something that plays very, very heavily. Um, but reading the papers, no, because in the papers, I mean, you'd, you'd get a lot of negative portrayals of, the, of those parties, uh, depending on the paper you read. But depends it depends on your selection. But yeah. I, I would say, uh, and it's it's actually what's interesting. Like me as a journalist, I notice that people are so interested in. Um, sort of being heard, like I sometimes I get really nasty emails, especially about the EU, and like me, you know, being a bit. People accuse me of being a big fan of the EU, and I said no. Look, I was trying to be very objective. I said this, that, and the other, say during the Greek crisis or something, and then I'd have a couple of exchanges, and once someone who'd written me a really nasty email said, "If we keep going on, if we keep doing this, we'll agree." And I think this guy was just so pleased that for once someone was listening to him. And, and I just get the feeling that it's something that plays in politics very strongly as well. What do you do? I, I think we shouldn't overestimate how much do people in individual countries know about the politics next door. Uh, because oftentimes it happens to me, part of what I get paid for is to, is to read the regional press. And often it happens that even the best papers in the, in the country X uh, have the information on what's happening in the country Y two days later than the FT. Uh, so people don't necessarily pay that much attention to what's happening with the neighbours unless it is a big protest or a big election that sort of is seen as determining the future of the country. Uh, you know, if countries are particularly culturally close, like Czech Republic and Slovakia, then they pour pay more attention to each other's politics because they probably have relatives living there or, or you know, they just, they just want to know. Uh, but for most of the countries, they don't necessarily watch what's happening in the other country. But the politicians do. And they do learn from each other. Uh, they do copy. I think a perfect example right now is the discussion about how to handle the media that doesn't necessarily uh, project the 
pro-government message uh, with uh, using the examples from Hungary, you know, re-diverting uh, advertisement spending, uh, looking to create some sort of an umbrella organization, uh, changing the governance of the public media and what have you. And that's pure learning from what, uh, what was implemented in other countries. Very similar case were changes in the pension systems, both when they were being introduced in the 1990s and early 2000s, and then when they uh, have been dismantled in order to feed temporarily the state budget so that it doesn't hit the, uh, the debt, ceiling, uh, debt ceiling breaks. Uh, and, and there is a number of examples like this. But one fact is that most of the countries are so different from each other in their individual interests uh, that they don't necessarily follow the same, same political patterns when it, when it comes to exact development in politics and exact parties that are, that are being uh, supported by the, by the population. But they are being influenced by the same external factors. Uh, one uh, that really, really stands out is actually Germany. Because if you, if you have a look at economic patterns of these countries, let's say uh, Visegrad four countries, uh, they export so much into Germany that when we watch the economic development of these countries, they basically follow Germany one quarter after either deeper down or higher up because they produce durable consumer goods. So if you have a look at, let's say, Czech Republic, Czech Republic exports uh, one third of everything that's produced in the country, 33% of all the exports and exports represent 82% of GDP to Germany. Not core markets of the EU, to Germany. So one, two, three tables, that one goes to Germany, right? So you can imagine the effect that whatever happens economically in, in Germany has on Czech Republic. By extension, in Slovakia, 22% goes to Germany, 10% goes to Czech Republic, one third of that goes, goes to Germany. So it, it is really sort of important to, to view what kind of influences actually determine uh, the, uh, the, the livelihood and the perceptions of the population, because it really is about being optimistic and pessimistic, uh, to determine the, uh, the, the politics and the stability of, of politics in individual countries. But if you look into cooperation in between individual parties that perhaps share, share the same characteristics in, uh, in these countries, there are not necessarily too many links between them. There are links between the leaders of these parties that occasionally meet, but given the personalities, it's often a clash rather than, rather than a friendship. But they do learn from each other. It's really amazing to see how fast they actually learn from each other. And sometimes it misfires. It misfired in, uh, in Romania, for example, when uh, the Social Democrats tried the Eurosceptic line, and that really just doesn't fly with the Romanian population. So they will have to abandon it quite fast, actually. Well, in a way, that's uh, similar to what happened to Mr. Le Pen with uh, Frexit, right? Uh, that uh, there was some back and forth in putting that on her platform. Yes, exactly, because, uh, and it's very important, I mean, it's, it's at the core of what we are saying about the populist having, in a way, no, or not as much as an ideology, as, a, as an attitude, is when you look at the, at the, at the National Front's attitude towards Europe, it changes every two years. You had uh, first Frexit, then no Frexit, then Frexit again, then now we don't know where we are, probably not Frexit anymore, but uh, it's something that is very important and I believe that is something, a, a reason for being optimistic, is that you can see that in all different kinds of indicators, being the turnout for the European Parliament's election or the polls or the changes of attitudes of populist parties towards the EU, that the attachment of the European populations towards the European Union increased in the recent years, I mean, probably from a trough that was uh, reached uh, during the during the economic uh, during the economic crisis. 
Last uh, opportunity to ask questions. Uh, yeah, I have two here and there. Just wait for the microphone. We start with you. and I work at the European Parliament and I have a question to all three of you because you've talked a lot about the rise of populism in different countries in Europe but I'm wondering if you also have a recipe in mind for how to counter this rise of populism thank you easy one <laughs> <laughs> Alexio I mean my question links a lot to what was just said, which Please is... introduce yourself. I, I work at the... I'm a policy strategist at the European Commission, and, and the angle would be from the Commission side. I, I, I've heard a lot of uh, national politics talking, and uh, but at the same time you say there are some general trends. And so what I wonder is, is there something that the Commission at a at European level can do at a time when policy doesn't really seem to be the key to do something about this stuff? So if I think of regional policy, we give money to the regions and then the regions or the territories or what you say ends up voting for these parties. And so I was wondering if we just should uh, wait and see and hope that the national politics takes care of this, but then be accused that we're not upholding the values. And so what is, what is your take on this? So two good questions. Let's take the panel in reverse order, starting with you, Attilia. All right, I'll, I'll take it from, from Alessia's question. Can the Commission do anything? Whatever you guys do is either going to be ignored or misinterpreted. And this is because uh, uh, European Commission in particular is actually an external uh, institutional constraint on the power of populists. So if inside the country they can change the workings of a constitutional court or the powers of the, I don't know, you know, uh, Supreme Court not to proclaim elections anymore or God knows what, they cannot do anything about the European Commission. And, uh, and especially about the ECJ, can, they, they cannot do anything. That's a, that's a, that's a separate thing. But uh, really, the European Commission is an external constraint on their exercise of power. Uh, therefore, you guys are a threat. Uh, any money that comes through from the European Union is fantastic and welcome, and they will put a plaque. Uh, but nobody really reads those beautiful blue boards uh, standing next to, next to the road. All that population cares about is that half of that money was stolen uh, because you know, the contract went to a company that did not deliver uh, through some sort of you know, politically connected person that now lives in Cayman Islands, and that's all they see, and they forget the blue board. Or they say, okay, look, that blue board is the very cause of the rising political corruption in my country because it's just too much money to resist. And the politicians are going to say, well, the EU is telling us to do this or that whenever there is an unpopular, unpopular decision coming. So I would suggest that this one is the best one to, to sit out uh, until, until the conditions are such that uh, EU becomes a, uh, a protection against the external crisis as it was perceived to be before, rather than the conduit of crisis into these countries as it is being seen now. And maybe that's the moment when something can be done in the meantime groundwork with people understanding what the European Union is actually about. Because if you, if you go into uh, individual countries, you don't even need to go to Central and Eastern Europe, just you know, go outside of Brussels and ask them, you know, what do you think of European Union? They're going to blame it for anything and everything. And once you start asking individual questions, you come to, to the point
point that people a don't understand what the powers of the uh, of the commission or the or the parliament actually are they probably can't even name the institutions and uh, they understand the, uh, the European Union in many ways as being responsible for all the evil in the world without necessarily understanding what is it about and who has the power to decide what and often blame the state of local roads on you know Brussels not understanding and unelected bureaucrats and what have you but it's all the rhetoric that's being created by the narratives perpetuated by uh, by the national political discourses rather than real understanding. And to me, it really all comes down to education of voters in where I come from, which is Slovakia. Uh, you know, the, the one hour a week that you have for civic education is basically used for drawing and, and having free time, right? And I think that's, that's exactly the wrong way to go because we are not educating people to understand the power that they actually hold when they go to elections. Um, and when it comes to, to the uh, countering the rise of populism, uh, again, it's making people understand that the political power they exercise is not about casting protest vote against anything and everything that you're unhappy with in your own personal life, be it your work situation and, or the state of the roads in your country, but it is passive and active uh, um, election, uh, election rights that if you don't like something, you can actually join the politics and you can join it on the local, national or European level. But giving people power to understand what they actually wield in terms of active and, and passive voting, uh, voting uh, is probably the way to, to counter the irresponsible voting patterns we have seen in recent years. So that was a reassuring answer for you, Alessio. Um, <laughs> Zilke? Yeah, I think educating people helps a lot. Uh, a commissioner recently said to me, the only thing that helps is if, if you actually have groups of people coming to Brussels and to understand what, we, what we're doing. Uh, certainly citizens' dialogues in member states um, also can play a role, but I have a feeling that it's mostly people who like the EU who attend those citizens' dialogues anyway, so you're preaching a bit to <laughs> those who are already believers. Um, but engaging in general is, 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 is very useful. And, um, because as, as Atiyah said, the EU and the Commission in particular is so easily blamed for a lot of evils and, and Brussels is just, you know, it's got a really bad rep in a lot of member states, in most member states probably. And going back to, to what you said, um, I, I also think engaging is, is really important and I think taking people's fears seriously. Those fears about uh, individual sort of, you know, social uh, downward moves that people are very much afraid of. I think that really is something that needs to be dealt with. And, and it was very interesting to see how that was actually addressed in the European elections differently by, by different Spitzenkandidaten or Spitzenkandidaten who hadn't declared uh, their, um, their, their, that they were running. Um, I, I find it very interesting to see, for example, Margrethe Vester is someone who talks about fear a lot, but in a, in a very positive way, telling people you're entitled to be afraid of certain uh, developments in, in your life. And I think that is a very clever uh, way of countering populism. David, you have the last word. Well, what, a, what a responsibility. Uh, no, building on, on, on what you said on the, on the, on the recipe against uh, populism, I believe that... Uh, as all good remedies, it should start with a good diagnosis of the situation. So I believe it is very important uh, to, in, to first not to indulge in denial. So I believe that we have to have a proper look at the political landscape and taking into account its evolutions without pretending 
that the old left-right divide, to make a consensus uh, uh, of, the, of, the, of the last decade, is still living. It's not by trying to pretend that what is dead is still living, that will protect us against populism. And so I believe that all the, the kind of criticism you, you, you did not make, but that many people did against Macron saying that, by saying that his enemy are the populists, he is in fact creating them, and that if he had pretended that the left and right still existed as strongly as it did, then the populists will never have uh, a reason, is, uh, is a major mistake. Basically, uh, populists rise, then the left-right the left -right divide collapses, then populists arise, and then you have to find an alternative. So an, an appropriate thing is this, second, the legitimacy of part of the demands that are expressed to the populist vote, you have to take that into account and not to indulge in moralization of the political debate, saying that, the, that your opponents, supporters are deplorables, as Hillary Clinton uh, terribly uh, said uh, just shortly before her defeat. And the third one is, in a way, making a review of all the failures of the left and right mainstream parties from the methods to the organization, through the public policies, and trying to, to provide alternative answers. Just to conclude, I believe that there are two dimensions that are uh, underplayed by liberals and that should be at the, at the center of our agenda. The first one is local, the other is European. The first one is local. I believe if we think that a major driver of the populist vote is the feeling of being powerless in front of the major changes that affect our lives. Uh, territorial fragmentation, migration, technological transformation, economic globalization, whatever. Then you have to give, then you, and not to give the impression, but to really give more control to the people. It starts with the local communities. And I believe it's very important for uh, the liberals, the progressists, to find new ways of uh, Americans would say community organizing at the local level uh, because first it creates more trust uh, between uh, people. So it's very important to counter the, the populist surge that feeds on fear, as you said. Second, it attracts people to organizations that deserted. So it's very good for the organizations themselves. And third, third because you provide local solutions to sometimes local problems that are very important, migrant integration, economic development, etc. And I think that a lot of what you can do at the local level can be very powerful. And because you make people understand that there are not only populists that can provide for this uh, local community of feelings. So the local level is very important. Then I believe that the supranational level, that the European level is very important, and I would be ashamed of not concluding by that, not only in Brussels, but in, in Bruegel. I believe that, in a way, all we said about the feeling of being powerlessness, of, of, of this feeling of powerlessness, is magnified at the EU level. Because the situation you have now, among the electorate, is the feeling of being in a trap. They don't believe, I mean, the majority does not believe in coming back to isolated nation states. And this is something that populists understood in the recent years, and that is one of the reasons why Marine Le Pen gave up, for instance, on, the, on her Frexit proposal. That is also one of the reasons why Matteo Salvini never crossed the line 
of advocating an exit of Italy. Even so, he, li he likes to get close, right? He likes to get close, but he never crosses. <laughs> he never crosses. It's, it's something very important. And I believe, for, for, for a lot of, of reasons, we don't have time to, to, to develop. But I believe, so on the one hand, they don't believe in coming back to the old nation states. On the other hand, they are, and I think it should not be uh, underestimated, uh, kind of desperate with the EU as it goes. The EU embodies, I believe, a vision of politics that was also replicated at the level of nation states that people resent a lot. That is, politics seen only as a space of market and law. Market that is free trade, etc., and law that is protecting individual rights through the European Courts of Justice, etc. I believe that people want politics to take back control, that is, having a state or supranational entity that takes into account the strategic dimension of having a power on the major changes we, we are talking about. So I believe that the EU has to create this strategic dimension, especially in relation to the external world, to, to, uh, to, to make a difference in globalization. It is something that does not, and I will end with that, it is something that does not fit into the left and right divide. You can advocate that either on the left side of the political spectrum, either on the right side of it. But I believe it is something that is very important because in a way the European Union difficulties are the guardian note of the, of the European malaise that is also felt in many member states. EU veld politik, uh, something to, uh, to mention. Uh, thanks very much to all our panelists. Uh, thanks to the audience for having braved the heat. Uh, our apologies on behalf of Bruegel for having a defective uh, cooling system just at the time we need it. Uh, but uh, I don't think we answered all the questions. I do think we had a lot of food for thought uh, and different perspectives in the panel. I certainly found it very useful. Uh, and uh, let us thank our panelists for that. Thank you very much. Thank you.